Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for that wonderful introduction, Skip, and ignore those pictures. But most of all, we thank you for joining us this evening. Hopefully the Lord will speak to you and give you the tools you need to understand the language that Pastor Skip was just referring to, because ultimately, words do matter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here this evening, to open up your word, to learn how to study it more efficiently, and to apply those lives to our study time as we pursue you, Lord, and pursue your truth. So we ask, Lord, that you would just join us this day, and we thank you for this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1963 was an epic year. It was one of those years that had a host of things occurring in its 365 days. And when you begin to unravel what happened in 1963, you go, wow, I got a greater appreciation of what went on. Take, for instance, just the deaths that happened in 1963. President John F. Kennedy was shot and assassinated in 1963. Our beloved C.S. Lewis, Christian apologist, author of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mere Christianity, he died in 1963. And for those who are country music fans, you know that in 1963, the airplane of Patsy Cline went down and we lost one of the great voices of country music. And speaking of music, 1963 was the year four lads from Liverpool, England, descended upon United States of America shores. Of course, you know them as the Beatles. And they ushered in what is called and what is known as the British Invasion. And of course, in 1963, a little guy by the name of Robert Zimmerman from Minnesota had his biggest stage yet at the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. Of course, Robert Zimmerman is Bob Dylan. And speaking of the March on Washington, 1963, America witnessed one of the greatest speeches ever given on racial equality by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And on a sadder note, in 1963, in the political realm, the Abington Township School District outlawed Bible reading that went down in the Supreme Court that It's unconstitutional from 1963 on to read the Bible publicly in our public school system. As as great and as grand of all these events are in 1963, there's one particular thing I want to draw your attention to that occurred in 1963, and it was the publication of a children's book. Yes, a children's book. And the children's book name was Amelia Bedelia. Oh yeah, come on folks, Amelia Bedelia. You know Amelia Bedelia. It's that housekeeper who couldn't seem to get the English language right. 
She was always mixing her metaphors. She was smashing her similes. She was axing her analogies. Whatever Amelia Bedelia did with the English language, she absolutely blew it. Case example. When they asked her to make sponge cake, she went to the kitchen, got sponges, and made a sponge cake out of real sponges. You know, that particular Amelia Bedelia. For those of you who are not so familiar with Amelia Bedelia, I just so happen to bring you a story. Now, this is, this is a book of Amelia Bedelia. And this is the particular story where she's learning to play baseball. And Amelia Bedelia is having a very difficult time learning how to play baseball. She's messing everything up. And so her team, the Grizzlies, are trying to coach her along. And finally, it's her turn up to bat. And this is what we read. They had two outs. The bases were loaded. And Amelia Bedelia was at bat. The Grizzlies were worried. Please, Amelia Bedelia, they said, please hit that ball hard. Amelia Bedelia swung at the first ball. She missed. She swung at the second ball. And again, she missed. Please, Amelia Bedelia, please, shouted the Grizzlies. Amelia Bedelia swung at the next ball, and oh, how she hit that ball. You could cheer for Amelia Bedelia. Amelia Bedelia hit the ball. And then the team member said, run, Amelia Bedelia, run, yelled the boys. Run to first base. And Amelia Bedelia ran. Hmm, she thought to herself, Tom says stealing is all right, so I'll just steal all the bases. I will make sure the Grizzlies win. So Amelia Bedelia scooped up first base and second base and third base. The boy seeing that said, run home, Amelia Bedelia, run home. Amelia Bedelia looked puzzled, but she didn't stop running. And on her way up, she scooped up home plate too. And the boys were surprised, but they looked at each other and they said, we won, we won the game. And then they looked at Amelia Bedelia, Amelia Bedelia, come back, come back, we won. But Amelia Bedelia was running too fast to hear. She did not stop until she reached home. Of course, Amelia Bedelia was mixing up what stealing means. In baseball, it means one thing. In real life, it means another thing. Going home means one thing. In baseball, it means something else. Amelia Bedelia just confused the English language. Sadly, some of us here tonight, myself included, have the dreaded syndrome, ABS. Many of us have ABS. Amelia Bedelia syndrome strikes many people in the world. It's a dreaded syndrome. You can look it up in all the medical textbooks. Amelia Bedelia syndrome is there. And many of us will mix our metaphors and smash our similes and torture our terms. But hopefully this night, I could give you some medicine that will at least put you on your way of curing that dreaded ABS. Tonight, I hope to give you some tools that you hopefully will implement in your own study time so that you could better understand the Bible in which the Lord inspires. My premise tonight is that when you understand some basic literary principles in the Bible, it will not only help clarify the Bible, but it will also bring the Bible to life. 
And before we begin to unpack these literary principles that hopefully you got some of them on some notes as you came in, a note card, I want to give you two analogies to think about of how you are to approach the Bible. And hopefully these will be helpful things for you to internalize when you are approaching the Bible. And the first way we can approach the Bible is as if it was a painting, as we approach a master painter. Pretend for a moment you're in an art gallery and you walk up to a beautiful picture from the Renaissance. And let's just say it happens to be this particular picture that you see on the screen by Carlo Crivelli. The first thing you usually do is you stand in front of the portrait and you look at the big picture, taking in the grandeur of what it is and you look at it and you start making a little sense. You go, I notice there's a lady and there's a child and I see some trees and there seems to be some kind of edifice. So you take in the big picture as you approach it. But those of you who are interested in art and fascinated by great art, you take a few steps closer and you begin to look at the details of what the painting has within it. And there you begin to notice, hmm, it's interesting. It does look like there's a Christ child, and that does look like Mary. And, and look at there's a, a fly there off to the left. And off to the right, there's a crack there in the wall. And isn't it interesting? There seems to be fruit up above. And you start noticing the details. And for those of you who are astute artists, you even begin to notice the type of brush strokes they use and the type of paint. This particular one's tempura. And you go, wow, look at all the details that is in this painting. And then all of a sudden, your curiosity is sparked. And you go, I just don't want to know the details. I want to know what this painting's about. And what you do is you ran and get the flyer, the brochure, or you go get a curator and say, hey, help me understand this painting some more. And then the curator or the flyer begins to unravel or unwrap the meaning of this painting. And you notice off to the left, you see a fly. Well, a fly during the Renaissance days represented corruption. And then you'll notice off to the right-hand side of the painting, you see a crack in the foundation. And then up to the right, you notice there's an apple. Well, an apple during the Renaissance times represented corruption as well, or temptation. And then you'll notice up to the left-hand side of this particular painting, a cucumber. A cucumber, but yes, that's a cucumber. Cucumbers represented fidelity and chastity. And then finally, you'll notice right in the center that the Christ child is holding a peacock. Well, a peacock during the Renaissance days represented immortality and life everlasting. And as you're listening to the curator or reading this in the brochure, you start to begin to unravel this figurative symbolic language. And believe it or not, this painting was a reaction against the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. The foundation, the crack, the foundation has been cracked. It's being tempted by corruption, the fly, and the temptation of the apple, the world, Satan. But in the middle of it, you see the Christ child who still holds immortality and everlasting life. And he's being faithful and chaste with the cucumber. So this painting all of a sudden takes on grand meaning. And it's because you were able to unpack and unravel its meaning. So big picture detail, begin to unravel. 
The second analogy, and this coincides with our our spiritual, uh, excuse me, uh, cooking 101 theme that we've got going on, is like a meal. And maybe more of you are familiar with preparing a meal. When you approach a meal, you have to approach it from the big picture. Here in America, we have three meals a day. There's breakfast, and it usually has its food associated with it. You have lunch, and it has its certain foods associated with it. And then you've got dinner, and it has its foods associated with it. So when you approach a meal, you go, hmm, I'm going to cook dinner tonight. That's the big picture. The details are, what are you going to cook? And all of a sudden, I've decided I'm going to cook steak, snow peas, and bread. And those are the details. I've I've kind of figured out what it is I'm going to do. But then, especially you people who are cooks and chefs, you know the real scrumptious element to any meal is the salsas and the spices and the marinade sauce that goes on to it. So you start to prepare this and it comes out to be a masterpiece because it tastes so yummy. But again, principle the same, the big picture, a detailed picture, and then an unraveling. And I propose to you this evening that this is the same way we should approach scripture when we're studying it. We should come to it looking at the big picture, understanding it from a large scope, and then get a little more detailed, uncovering some of the specifics about it, and then looking at this beautiful figurative language that Pastor Skip was just telling us about. And I believe anyone could do this. You only need to know three letters of the alphabet. You only need to know three letters of the alphabet. And those letters are G, T, and F. G, T, and F. G stands for genre, and it's the big picture. T stands for terms, and it's the detailed look. And F stands for figurative language, and figurative language is the symbolic and beautiful language that is being used that adds meaning and power and passion to what the Scripture has to say. So we are going to look at these three letters, G, T, and F this evening. And if you have your notes, I encourage you to follow along with them. G genre is simply a category, a category of form or style or substance. It's what a particular author writes in. And the key principle you need to know about genres are that there are various genres, various genres. And these genres are important for you to understand. Why? Because a lot of times, the genres will help dictate the type of language being used. Let me say that again. Genres will help dictate the type of language being used. So when you come to letters, whether they're Paul's letters, or they're Peter's letters, or James or John, they are usually doctrinal, teaching you something about the Christian life, or exhortive. They're exhorting us how to live a Christian life. So for the most part, letters will use very plain language, language that they want the reader and hearer to understand. Letters are a type of genre. And when you get to narration, which is the telling of a story, or history, which again is documenting historical events, or a biography, which is telling about a particular person, they too tend to use more simplified language because they're interested in communicating facts of a story. 
So both letters, history, biography, and narration tend to be and tend towards more simplistic language. Now, when you turn to the next three types of genre, parables, poetry, and prophecy, the three Ps, they don't always use the most simplistic type of language. As a matter of fact, poetry uses beautiful similes and metaphors and analogies. And parables are really an allegory, using an allegory of how to live a Christian life. And each of these have their own unique language that you need to understand. And prophecy, as you know, going to a Bible teaching church, can use some really strange imagery. But again, these genres dictate the type of language that is being used for the most part. Little side note, I understood the power of poetry when I was out of high school. And I probably should be telling you this because it'll just confirm in some of your minds I really am a nerd. But <clears throat> there is a few of us right out of high school that we formed a club. <clears throat> and the club was called the Gentleman's Club. And the Gentleman's Club, how you got inducted into the Gentleman's Club is you had to have gone a long time without a date or have not had a girlfriend. I was the vice president of the Gentleman's Club. And what the Gentleman's Club did is this group of guys, we would go around and we would do random acts of kindness. We would just do things, bless people at a store, pay for them, and and people would go, what's going on? What are these guys doing? Well, one day I thought I would test the power of poetry. So we were at a Denny's, and I had my Bible, and there was a group of girls, cute girls, a few booths over. So I said, guys, watch this. I go over there. I look them all in the eye. I scoot off all the stuff out of the way. I get down on one knee. I open up the Bible, and I don't remember what it was this day, but I had something great. And I restarted to recite poetry. And the girls were, oh, this is so cute. This is adorable. Oh, this is magnificent. And I'm thinking, man, this scripture is pretty good. And so I kept reading, and they were going, and then they finally said, what's your name? I stood up, looked at the guys. We all got up, and we ran. So... Because I liked the power I had as vice, you know, president of this particular thing. Couldn't get a date. But the thing is that in the Bible, the poetry is powerful. And I understood its power of its words. But that's not the only type of genre in there. There's also wisdom literature, such as Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And once again, a lot of times, the genre will help dictate the type of language being used. Think of the wisdom literature as kind of an in-between the strict poetry as well as a narration. Sure, there's stories going on, but they use poetry and they use what we call personification, giving personal attributes to something such as wisdom. But it uses that type of thing. And the final type of category is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. And apocalyptic uh, genres usually have to do with prophecy. Now, hear me out here. Not all apocalyptic literature is prophetic in nature. Though apocalyptic literature does use prophecy. So these are genres that you need to become familiar with as you approach the scripture. That's G. T is our second letter. 
And T stands for terms. And terms are the detailed picture, if you will, going back to our art, standing forward in front of it and beginning to notice the things that are going on in the painting. And in our case, the terms are getting to notice the words and phrases that are within the scripture. And terms are simply words or phrases used to describe a thing or express a concept. And here's some key principles I want you to take home today. Key principles, very important for you to internalize these. First of all, you need to define the words and terms historically. Well, what does that mean? That means to the best of your ability, you have to understand how the author used that word within a first century context. You can't all of a sudden pull a word out of the Bible and necessarily apply it to today using how we understand that word. Just think of something as simple as cool. You know, the Bible says it was cool in the morning. That doesn't necessarily mean it was hip and it was all right and everything was out of sight. It doesn't mean that at all. It means it was cold. It means it was cold. So you understand that you have to understand those words within its historical content. It's very important that the words understand. By the way, there's, there's a, a huge war going on in the academic world in the church over the word justification. Interestingly enough, isn't it? And on one side, they're contending that the word justification means strictly one particular definition. And on the other side, they're arguing, saying, no, no, it doesn't mean that because Paul would have understood it as such. And I personally, in that argument, would try to go back with what Paul would have to say about that word because Paul was the one that penned the main epistles or letters that use that word. So we have to understand the word historically. Secondly, we have to understand our terms contextually. What does that mean? That means we, once again, can't pull a word or a phrase out of the greater context and make it say what we want to say. We have to read what goes on before that word and what goes on after. And not only that, we have to look at what the full book that it is in has to say about it. And not only that, we have to look at what the rest of the Bible has to say. And Nelson covered a lot of this last week and how to interpret properly. But we have to interpret words contextually. Thirdly, and this is really important, you have to define your terms scripturally. What do I mean by this? I mean that you have to define scripture with scripture when you can. So when you stumble upon a word that you're scratching your head going, God, I don't know what this means. Find another place in the Bible where that very word is used and see the context of that and begin to glean and understand why that word is used that way. Let me give you a classic example, again, on the scholarly world where they get tripped over a particular word. And that word is the Hebrew word yom. And Yom is found in Genesis 1, and it simply means day. Well, there's a lot of scholars who would say that particular word only means a 24-hour period of time. And then over here, you've got other scholars saying, no, 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 no. It means in a determined period of time. And then you've got the third scholars over here saying, no, it's an undetermined period of time. And you get these arguments over one particular word. And again, I can't solve that particular argument, but what I can say is the best course of action that each of us should take when we approach a particular word is to look at what the rest of the Bible has to say and let scripture define itself scripturally. 
The final thing in relationship to terms is define it academically. Define it academically. And what do I mean by define it academically? What I mean is do what Pastor Dave did at the very first teaching. You pick up some concordances. You pick up some dictionaries. And you look up the word to determine its meaning. To find out its nuances. And to really get inside that word so as that word can expand your mind over its particular meaning. So you define it academically. So thus far, we've looked at G, genre, the big picture. We've looked at T, terms, the detailed look. And the third is F, the figurative language. The figurative language. And figurative language is simply an illustrative word or phrase used to add force to the written or spoken language. And this is like in our meal preparation, the salsas and the spices. This is what adds that, mm, it's, it's the icing on the cake. It's that element that really makes scripture come alive in our study. And like the other two, there are some key principles I hope you take home with you today. Some very important, important ones. Why? Because this is a particular area that the dreaded ABS, the Amelia Bedelia syndrome, really takes root. And like the story I read to you, sometimes people will scoop up the bases and run home with them. And Bible teachers and Bible scholars and others are saying, come back, Amelia, you've got that word, you've got that meaning all wrong. Come back, let us help you understand what's going on. But what's happened is people take their own interpretation. They take their own definition and they run with it. Rather than sitting down and looking at what the total scripture and understanding some basic key principles in how we approach figurative language. So principle number one in relationship to figures is use, now listen closely, use the literal sense unless there is good reason not to use the literal sense. So let me repeat that again. Use the literal sense unless there's good reason not to. Now, a lot of you are going to kick me later on because I'm going to foil a huge misunderstanding within the Christian church. And this misunderstanding has been going on for a long time. And it's in relationship to the book, Song of Solomon. Throughout church history, they've interpreted the Song of Solomon as an allegory for Christ's love for the church. So when they read this classic, classic verse from the Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love. They go, man, I can't believe, you know, that's so beautiful that he wrote that about Christ. Christ's banner over me is love. And some of you guys have memorized that. Well, and you could punch me, give me a knuckle sandwich later. It's a wrong interpretation. It's wrong. Why? Because the Song of Solomon is not a figurative book. It's to be taken in its literal sense. So, when you read, His banner over me is love, that's talking about a man's love for his wife. 
And when you look at the Song of Solomon in its context and historically, it is a book between a husband and a wife. It's a very intimate book. But people have taken it out and super-spiritualized in such a way that it's taken on a life of its own. But the bottom line is, it's not a figurative book. It's a literal book. So use the literal meaning unless there's reason not to. Second principle is use the figurative when the passage calls for it. Classic example, Daniel. Daniel 7 through 12. If you look at Daniel 7, you'll find that Daniel's starting to describe four beasts. But then Daniel goes on to interpret what these four beasts are. So he gives you figurative language or metaphorical language. And then he explains it later on. So we understand that section of scripture figuratively because the Bible calls us to understand it figuratively. Are you with me on that? I just don't decide to start interpreting things figuratively or literally. I have to view the scripture as the scripture declares itself. The third principle is use the figurative interpretation if the literal is impossible. What do I mean by this? If something is physically impossible or not known to humankind in a real-world sense, we probably need to err on the figurative side of things. Classic example, the book or elements or parts of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation says what's going to come out of the ocean. Anyone? Beasts. And how many heads do these beasts have? You get the point. I haven't seen lately a huge water creature with various heads around. Now, I'm not saying God couldn't create something like that. He could. But for all intents and purposes, I believe John, in this particular case, is using figurative language to describe a spiritual truth. So we have to understand to use figurative language if the literal or the plain meaning is impossible. And then we need to use the figurative approach if it goes against the greater teaching of the Bible. Now, this again is controversial within the church. In some of us, from Roman Catholic backgrounds. I'm not here to bash Roman Catholics. Not at all. But some of us from Roman Catholic backgrounds understand this. Because during the Eucharist or communion, they would teach that you were actually eating what? The body of Christ. And when you're taking the wine, you're actually drinking what? The blood of Christ. You guys who are from Roman Catholic background understand this completely. Here's the problem then. Here's the problem. That this particular scripture that says, eat my flesh, would go against the larger teaching of the Bible. It goes against the larger teaching of cannibalism and all these other things. It is not a great way to view this particular section literally when it goes against the greater teaching of scripture. Interestingly enough, In the early church, after the disciples had already went home to be with the Lord, one of the 
elements or items that Rome thwarted against the Christians and persecuted them for is because they said they were cannibals. Early Christians were cannibals because they, they eat of his body and drink of his blood. And literally, Christians were imprisoned because they thought they were physically eating of people's body. We were going around as Christians eating one another. It's kind of gross, but truly that's what people thought. There's letters by Tacitus and others that say that's what they thought. But here's the reality. That's not what the Bible's teaching, that we're to eat one another. And we're eating the body of Christ or we're drinking his blood. So when we see a scripture like this, we have to approach it from a figurative manner. You with me on this? You with me? The final principle in figures is you have to know some basic figures of speech. Now, I've given you a huge list in your notes. I'm not going to go over them. Some of you are going, man, thank the Lord. I'm not going to go over them. I give them to you, and it's why I provided the notes, so that you could take and learn some basic figures of speech. And when you are reading through the Bible, you can apply these to what you're reading and let the scripture come alive in your life to let it blossom and bloom. Now, we're going to see some of these figures of speech here in a moment, but there's a list. And again, this is just a partial list, but this is a list of some of the main figures of speech that you will find in the scripture. So up to this point, we've looked at the genre, the what? The big picture. We've looked at the terms, which is a more detailed look. And now we finish with the figurative language, which more or less is the spice, the added beautiful language to add power and essence to what the Bible has to say. So what is learning some tools without applying them? So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 139. And we're going to put these tools that we just learned to use. Psalm 139, and I'm not going to go through the full psalm. I'm actually going to go through verse 10. But let's stop for a second and ask ourselves, what's the big picture? What genre are the psalms? What type of literature? Anyone? Poetry, lyrics I, I heard, and they're both correct. They're lyrics to songs, but we view them as poetry. So with that in mind, we can conclude that it is going to use more beautiful flowing language. There's going to be a poetic nuance to this particular thing. So already at the get-go, we understand what we can expect from this. So the genre is poetry. Secondly, we have to look at terms. And here's my recommendation for you when you're doing terms. Grab a pencil. Grab a pen. And when you're reading through the Bible, underline or circle words that capture your attention. Again, underline or circle words. For those of you who think it's sacrilegious to write in your Bibles, write in a notebook off to the side words that capture your attention. So let's, let's do this together. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. Hmm. Search, interesting word. Knows an interesting word. You know, there's no again. Maybe underline that. You know my sitting down in my rising up. You understand. Now there's a fascinating word. What does he mean by that? You understand my thoughts afar off. Verse 3. You comprehend my path in my lying down. I'm fascinated by that word comprehend. 
and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and have laid your hand upon me. I'm fascinated by that word hedged. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. That would capture my attention. I would underline that. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So what we've done is we've read through the text and we've noted either in our mind or underlining or writing down words that interest us. Then what we do is we grab that dictionary and grab a concordance or a Bible and begin to understand what these words mean. And let me tell you this. Any Bible teacher would concur with what I'm about to say. As you begin to unfold the meanings of these words, the scripture literally explodes. It comes to life like you would not believe. It's like a biologist who sees something with his naked eye, but when he picks that up and puts it under a microscope, a whole other world comes into focus. I believe that's true when you begin to study these words. It gives you so much depth into what the Lord is trying to communicate. And I'm just going to give you a cursory example of some of the words that I notated even as I was reading them out. I notated the word search. And here, the psalmist, who's probably David, used this word. But this word means to seek out or to examine or find. That's beautiful. Because look at it within its context. Oh Lord, you have searched or sought me out. You have examined me. You have found me. It adds that extra beauty. It's a gorgeous phrase. And then look what it says. And you know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. What does the word know mean? It means to perceive, to see, to discriminate. So not only has the Lord sought each and every one of you, not only has he sought you out, he knows you. He perceives you. He knows what you're going through. He understands your circumstances, whether they're for good or for ill right now. He knows what is occurring in your life. Once again, by uncovering, by holding up the microscope to that word, beauty is what comes forth. And then you keep going down and you look, oh, you understand. And in verse 3, you comprehend, and that is to discern or to consider. And look at this to think about, to think about. So not only does the Lord know you and he sought you, he's thinking about you. His thoughts are for you. The Lord has a heart for each and every one of you as his child. And again, by just understanding these words, we get a sense of what the Lord is trying to communicate. Verse four, there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, you know it altogether. In verse 5, you have hedged me. Interesting word, hedged or hem. Some even translations use the word so. And that, again, is a beautiful thought. This idea that not only does the Lord know you, not only is he leading you and seeking after you, he's actually hemming you up. 
Not in a literal sense, but in the sense that he has created you. Because later on in this section of scripture, David proclaims, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's this idea that God has created you. He's thought of you from the foundations of the world. Going down in verse 6, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That word knowledge just means wisdom. God's wisdom is so beyond our own. God's wisdom is his own, and it accumulates in his very being. And we have to sit and go, wow. It causes awe and reverence and that godly fear where we could understand that God is the creator and we're the creature. And then moving down, just a few more. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the original hell, behold, you are there. Maybe that caught your attention. And Sheol means the place of the abode or the place, the abode of the dead, excuse me. So you get the point. As you look at the terms, they come to life. They add that extra meaning. And it simply is you just paying close attention to the details of what you're reading and notating them. So that's terms. Now thirdly, in our case study, we look at the figurative language. And this is where you could use your list. We won't go through it all today. But there are some beautiful figures of speech here. The first one is found in verse 2, which is merism. Merism is simply a figurative idiom that contrasts opposites. And we see this here. You know my sitting down and you know my rising up. He's comparing and contrasting. He's adding force to the truth that God is with you and he knows whatever you're doing, whether you're standing or sitting. David is using this poetic nuance. It's, it's gorgeous. And then you go on and you see allegory in verse 4 and 5. There is not a word on my tongue. David's not literally saying, he's not saying that. He's using an allegory, again, to communicate that God knows what you're thinking, that he knows what you're about to speak. He knows what you have said today. He's acquainted with every aspect of who you are. But that is an allegory. And then there's anthropomorphism, which Skip mentioned at the beginning. And anthropomorphism, if you read your notes, is simply a story or picture, excuse me, the attribution of human features or action to God. So giving human qualities to God. And here we see lots of anthropomorphism being used. In this case, in verse 5, we read, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now, is God literally taking a hand out of the heavenly realm and, and touching me? Probably not, but we understand it figuratively. But the meaning is what? That God is guiding me. His hand is walking me through life. He's leading me through the trials and tribulations of existence. There's also a rhetorical question, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? A rhetorical question is simply asking a question that you already know the answer to. You could go nowhere. God is everywhere. Even in the abode of the dead, God is there. God is present everywhere. And then finally, you see personification. And personification is simply ascribing human characteristics to inanimate objects. And we find this personification, verse 9, where it says, If I take the wings of the morning, 
do, does the morning really have wings? No. But again, it's a beautiful poetical device to add meaning and grandeur to the text. And I don't know about you, but I am so glad the Lord's a poet. And when you think about it, a good portion of the Bible is written down in poetry. God inspired the 66 authors. He inspired many of them to write through poetry. What does that tell us about our God? He's a, he's a master artist. And this section of scripture, when you understand the genre, the terms, and begun to unravel the figurative meaning, it brings you comfort and consolation knowing that the Lord is with you. He's formed you. He's fashioned you. He knows your thoughts. He knows where you're going. He's guiding you through this life. And that kind of reminds me of a small section in Ephesians where the Apostle Paul simply says this about you and I, that we are God's poema is the actual word used. What this means in Ephesians 2.9, that we are God's poem. Other translations would say we are God's masterpiece. We are God's work of art. And so not only do we get a great appreciation of his word as being a masterpiece, when we study his word, we begin to understand that we as his people are his masterpiece, that he's working in each of our lives. And I believe that this acronym, GTF, is not only how we should approach the Bible, which I do believe is how we should approach it. I also believe that GTF is how God views us. I believe it's a very similar matrix to how the Lord looks at you and I. The big picture. For God so loved the world. What's the big picture? God loves you. God loves me. But in that love, the Lord understands that we have sinned and we have fallen short. We have strayed. We have done what the Bible calls, we have done what was right in our own eyes. We have not followed after the Lord. So even though the big picture, God so loved the world, the second step, the detail, the terms, the Lord also provided. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, should not die. So not only do we get the big picture, God loves the world, but we get the terms and the detailed look that the terms of God's provision is that we believe upon his son whom he sent. And the promise is we will have eternal life. That is the promise. That's the detail. And it simply is just a step of faith accepting what God has plainly said, accepting the atonement, the propitiation, the sacrifice that Christ laid down on our behalf. God has provided the terms and the details. But what blows my mind and makes me get goosebumps and make my hair stand on its end is not only does he love us and has he provided a remedy for our sin, he's given us that season that spice, that third element that explodes us, that brings in beauty beyond measure. And that is he's given us his Holy Spirit to live in and through us, 
to work on his behalf, to partner with the Lord for his kingdom, to, if you will, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to build the kingdom of God one brick at a time until the Lord returns for us. That is a joyful, wondrous sound that should be ringing from every mountaintop that the Holy Spirit, God of heaven, resides in us. And we have the privilege, the opportunity to partner with him in building the kingdom, of using our spiritual gifts to bless others. True, the Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness, but the Holy Spirit also comforts us and leads us and directs us and uses us to bless others through this journey of life. So not only do we find GTF a great matrix for understanding the Bible, we find it a great matrix for understanding God's purpose. For God so loved the world, the big picture, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not die. That is the details, the terms, the conditions, and then the life. That whosoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. You see, folks, you don't have to have ABS. You don't have to have the Amelia Bedelia syndrome. I've given you some tools that you could use, not ABS, but GTF, God's truth fulfilled. You could become convinced that God has revealed himself within his word. And as you unravel and understand what God is communicating, you could rejoice that God has done so through his word by simply looking at the big picture the terms, and then unraveling that beautiful meaning. But also we could begin to understand the heart of the Lord towards us. And yet we were sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. And he's saving us. And he's continually to save men and women throughout the world. So ladies and gentlemen, don't let ABS, Amelia Bedelia syndrome, rule your life. Rather, let GTF, be your motto and how you approach the Bible and how you understand God's heart towards us. God's truth fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the life it has entailed in it. We thank you, Lord, for these study tools that we have learned this night, the big picture, the detailed look, as well as the figurative language. We pray, Lord, that you would appropriate these in our life and that you would use them for your glory. And Lord, we just thank you for the privilege it is to serve you, to walk with you, to be called children of God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.